0: Hello, this is Surviving Healthcare Podcast, and I have a dear friend of mine who I've known since, how old were we, Jeff? Junior oh, high school? Junior high. Junior high school. And we lived across the street from each other, and we uh, we influenced each other and ended up in medical school together at Case Western. And later on, we uh, flew hang, actually it was in high school, we flew hang gliders together and did some rock climbing and uh, had all kinds of adventures. And in, in medical school, before the weightlifting craze started we started seriously lifting weights in our uh, in our our living room and uh, we <laughs> it was an awful lot of fun with one other uh, student plus and your 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 bro i don't think was around that much he was in my uh, other class i i dropped out for 2 years and was fortunate enough to uh, get picked up again and uh ended up in the second class so jeff's a couple years younger uh so uh, Jeff was a better student than I was and uh, he now were you that in in the AOA
1: no I, I missed no. it by one point
0: your wife was though your wife yeah, sure, <laughs> your yeah. wife was Much which is than
1: we were, top
0: 10 percent well more better student anyway yeah. and so uh Jeff is an orthopedic surgeon and today my topic is orthopedic joint replacements which he's done an awful lot of he's retired in the last six months is that correct
1: Uh, actually it's been about a year and a half now, a year and a half Time Time
0: freaking flies. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I keep telling people I've been retired two years, but it may be like three and a half. Uh, so uh, we're, we, what the first thing we ought to do is compare as old dogs, we have to compare our injuries. Now I've had, (laughs) I've pulled off my quadriceps off my kneecap and I, uh, ruined a biceps uh, tendon. So I've got a biceps that doesn't look uh, so pretty anymore both climbing. And then I've had two shoulder replacements. Now I think you're, uh, and then I chipped a tooth when I was climbing, I was hanging on for dear life. And you always feel like you're going to die if you fall. And so I think I hooked a tooth over a little ledge and fell off and broke my tooth off. (laughs) Was that stupid or what? But, uh, Jeff, I think is at one hip replacement and that's all the problems he's ever had.
1: Oh, well, I, Bob, I would say that you're ahead of me a little bit. I guess, uh, you know, we're always our own worst enemy, but I, most of my problems were probably more genetic and uh, I didn't lead quite as an adventurous life as you did. <laughs> but I, I'd like to claim that fame, but I don't have that ability. But um, but anyway, yeah, we uh, we're getting older. We do share some common ailments now.
0: Okay. So so Jeff has had quite a storied career. He got a top orthopedic uh residency at Washington University in St. Louis. And this is really a top, I think is the top couple in the country. And he, I think you did a fellowship in joint replacement as well, didn't you? I did. Yeah. And that was primarily hips, or that was all kinds of joint replacements.
1: Well, the way it worked, and thank you for the kind introduction, Bob. <laughs> um, <laughs> The way it works in orthopedics, so my path led me that direction, yours uh, in a different direction, but um, orthopedics is, you know, comprises of several uh, spe- subspecialties, and I chose uh, joint replacement, which is called adult reconstructive anyway, so that's all about the technology and the, you know, the form of treatment that takes us old guys and puts us back on the field, you know. Um, just as an aside, you know, and you and I both know the old joke, um, the most gifted students actually went into the internal medicine related fields. And then everybody that was left, like yourself, everybody that was left like me ended up in orthopedics, right? Uh, It was kind of the the jock or the blue collar, uh, you know, subspecialty preference um, by default. Um, But anyway, yeah, it's, things have changed a little bit. It's a much more sought after training program now, and and especially uh, within the field. And I think a lot of that has to do with economics and medicine. But nevertheless, uh, I ended up doing that. And I I thought I was pretty well suited for it because I kind of grew up with tools in my hand, using my hands a lot and home repair and auto mechanics and that kind of thing. And it just seemed to have a lot of appeal. Um, the, uh, the old joke, Bob, you remember when we were in school, the, in the hospitals, you could always tell the orthopedist from the internal medicine people because when running for an elevator, the internal medicine guy would reach in with his hand. Well, orthopedists, we'd use our head, you know, got to protect oh. the hand. <laughs> But we, we had the last say because we could always remind them that uh, that in the end we were all internists, but the difference between surgeons and internists was that we could operate. So. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's a lot more competitive to get into uh, yeah, is, ortho yeah. now than yeah. it is, and it's a very select group. And I, I don't uh, don't. Neither yeah. of us
1: would make it now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Uh, so. Um, so we're, we're going to go over these surgeries, the complications and the problems and the various, uh, adventures Jeff's had during his career. And the interest or my entree into this was that I had two shoulder replacements within the last six months. And i I'm about, uh, eight weeks out of my uh, second one and I've been sick and haven't been doing much rehab. So they're a little stiff right now, but I've got every confidence I'm going to have a fantastic result. And Jeff, how many of these did you do during your career? Shoulders?
1: Well, I did shoulders uh, less frequently, but primarily because, you know, they just weren't done as commonly. That's not as common an ailment. The uh, incidence of shoulder disease in the, in the patients who would be appropriate uh, for, for surgery is just not that great. Uh, by far, the most common ailment that is treatable with joint replacement uh, it involves the knee, then the hip, then the shoulder, probably then elbow wrist ankle that kind of thing so there's a there's kind of a hierarchy and frequency that you know that you'll see joint replacement being done nowadays i I just go ahead
0: i just remembered remembered a story that i have to interject before we launch into this thing and that is jeff and his brother were very mechanically inclined and they they had training their father ran uh an entrepreneurial uh washing machine company that had uh Tendrils in all of the Midwest, as far as I could tell, and he believed in working the kids. So the kids had to go over and work at the various uh, projects. And I mean, Jeff's brother was my exact age contemporary, and he he went to dental school. He's very well suited for that. Went to the same school we went to. And when we were hang gliding, he got a kit to put together this hang glider. It wasn't like today; these things were like very beginning stage hang gliders. It was called a Brock regalo and he he got uh pipe fitting and he put this thing together with rivets and screws and bought the sail and stretched it over the thing and you know we just jumped off the top of the cliff and it worked it worked and jeff's father who i was very fond of uh and mentored me in a lot of ways um took us to florida multiple times he actually almost flew the hang glider himself but he we have photographs of him standing at the top of the cliff and flapping his wings and de- deciding declining to launch, <laughs> declining <laughs> to launch. But anyway, wisely. <laughs> like, wisely he said, We don't know what's going to happen to you kids if I break my neck. That's what he that's what he was quoted as saying. Okay, so sorry to take you off the path. You can no. look at my uh both sided. Uh, shoulder replacements. There's some steel in there. I'll include the X-rays in the show notes, uh, and also uh, uh, include Jeff's phone, uh, cell phone number so you can call him for questions. <laughs> no, I'm kidding about that. <laughs> Jeff's that's had plenty of questions.
1: I have a little button that I can turn off. <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah. Okay. So uh, I didn't. I I didn't realize that more knees were done than hips.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Knees are by far the most common uh, joint that's replaced.
0: So you yeah. have as much experience with that as with the hips.
1: Uh, well, I have, I have, uh, you know, had over the years, uh, have a tremendous experience in both. That's primarily what I did. I didn't, I didn't see broken bones or little kids with deformities. You know, there's the a lot of things that go into orthopedics, but spine and hand surgery. There are a lot of these subspecialties that people call themselves orthopedic surgeons, but they all deal with the different uh, aspects of the problem. So my my day in, in the office would be probably. Eighty to ninety percent degenerative arthritis or osteoarthritis patients, so they're you know anywhere from twenty to ninety-five. And so on the,
0: on the X-rays, the, they show no space where the cartilage is. the the bone It's bone on bone. Now, can any of those bone on bone people be asymptomatic or not have pain, or is that universal that they have pain?
1: Well, it's very rare to find somebody who has that kind of X-ray evidence who is without any symptoms. Now you hit, you know, bone against bone is very uh, inflammatory. So it's gonna cause problems for everybody, but everybody's reaction to pain might be somewhat different. I mean, classically we would have people who come, usually older, big uh, burly guys would come in who had, you know, very physically demanding careers or whatever and and they would come in at a later stage and i think it probably to a large degree has to do with their pain threshold and what their physical capabilities were to enable them to mobilize and get around still even with a with a bad joint like that so somebody who's not very athletic younger maybe a low pain threshold we might see earlier but they had, they all have that common um, uh, condition of bone against bone arthritis. They could have gotten it from any number of ways, but most commonly, it's just uh, osteoarthritis, which mostly genetic. So.
0: And so, those uh, those hips surgeries were invented in the 30s, and the the uh, uh, knees not until the 60s. But I don't think that knee surgery was very successful until much more recently. I read studies as recently as. 10 or 15 years ago that said that the knees a third of them still needed painkillers after the the joint replacement. I don't think that's true anymore. Is it?
1: Well, no, I, I if you look at the, uh, the anatomy of all the joints, they're all, they're all quite a bit different. And from an engineering standpoint, it's much more difficult to achieve uh, bio-identical performance with, you know, man-made implants in some joints than it is in others. And so, In fact, when I did my fellowship training, I worked with a guy who was a pioneer and implant fixation. How do we attach man-made materials to bones to allow people to get up and load them like, you know, normal everyday life would uh, necessitate and not have the implants loosen up or fail, which was probably one of the, that an infection because of the, you know, the the state of, of, of the art in terms of that. It was about the 1960s where modern joint replacement really came into its own, where we had good results that could be reproduced and held up for a reasonable length of time to allow people to return to a fairly normal lifestyle. It was uh, pretty much uh, hips that that led the way because hips tended to be the easiest to replace from a mechanical and engineering standpoint uh, and from a fixation standpoint. So uh, just, I mean, I'll say a little bit more if you'd like, but I mean yeah, go ahead. a lot of technology that goes into that. And uh, like I said, when I did my fellowship, I was with a guy who was considered, uh, well, he's internationally known for his work, um, but it was somewhat of a rogue orthopedic uh, entity because he was pretty much um, a lone wolf. He did most of his work on his own. He didn't collaborate with others. In the medical profession, he did at that time, this would have been late 70s, early 80s, work with industry, which was fledgling at that time. The industry was just beginning because of the new success of joint replacement being more widespread. Like I said, it started in the 60s, but it really became more uh, uh, accessible to, to, to patients and to doctors throughout the world over the next 10 to 15 years. And so that meant there was a huge influx in money, of course, industry, and then you follow with government. And I'll say more about that later down the road if you'd sure. like. But basically, that, that's how it all began. And it began with uh, advances in technology and fixation, the strength of materials, the bearing surface um, uh, designs. And there's just, I mean, it seems like a very simple thing to put in like a a new metal shield on the ends of the bones, but it's way, way more complex than that. Most people aren't really aware of that.
0: You ended up with a patent uh, together with your mentor for an orthopedic device. Tell that story briefly.
1: Well, (laughs) it's uh, actually, it was somewhat peripheral to orthopedics in that what what I did during my fellowship with uh, this gentleman was... uh, at the time, he was doing a lot of knee replacements. And in fact, I'll back up just a little bit. I said he was pretty much internationally renowned. But what really attracted me me to him, I think, uh, was his ability to do things independently. And he actually developed knee replacement instrumentation, you know, the tools that we use to install a knee implant. He, he made those, designed them, and made them in his garage. <laughs> and this, of course, was in the 1970s. This would have been at a time where we didn't have the tremendous scrutiny and restrictions and so forth on how everything uh, gets to the market. But, but, it, but they were really uh, uh, ingenious, and it, and it allowed him to work in the field which he chose, this implant fixation technology field, uh, where he could use his instruments to attach implants to bone. Well, that of course led to different design in the implants themselves, and there was a lot of you know a lot of work being done on the implants in terms of the materials that were used, biocompatibility, their ability to hold up, not break, not wear uh, wear down, for example, like car tires. So there's just a just a huge um, science to all that kind of stuff, and he was really at the forefront. And so what my, my introduction to him occurred at a time, and the only interesting part about this is that joint replacement was a big bloody operation, especially knees and hips. Big operation, a lot of bone uh, dissection, tissue dissection. And I got into this, as you recall, um, right at the point where you know the HIV uh, uh, problem became apparent, became known. And if you remember back in the early 1980s, when we first learned that the blood supply, you know, the blood banks were not as trustworthy or not as, not trustworthy is not the term, but not as reliable for, from a patient safety standpoint, particularly with regard to HIV, that we had to be careful about doing these big surgeries and uh, then exposing patients to the risk of donor blood, okay? So donor blood, there was a period of time about a year, year and a half, where we didn't we didn't have the ability to assure patients that donor blood was safe.
0: Sort of like COVID today.
1: Well, yeah, I, I, we may be. Anyway,
0: the, sorry. A, yeah, No, no,
1: that's true. Uh, so what we did is I recognized uh, from my training, which I had just my residency in orthopedics, not the fellowship, but just prior to that in Cleveland where they were doing a lot of cardiothoracic surgery, but I recognized that they were using and had been using for several years a blood reclamation process where they did these open heart procedures, open chest dissections, and they, you know, sewed everything up and they had grains, which allowed them to collect the blood that was still being produced at that in, in the, in the wound site. And that, you know, it doesn't immediately stop completely in patients who have had these operations. Well, the same was true in orthopedics, particularly when we had big surfaces of the bone that were cut that you couldn't really cauterize. So their bone is a very highly vascular tissue. So we, there were patients who were losing a lot of blood. And so we had to then decide how we're going to manage this. One option was to have them donate a blood ahead of time, uh, autologous pre-donation, which you probably remember. And that's just a big ordeal. It's expensive. It had its own set of problems and uh, misfires. But we decided that if the... <laughs> <laughs> if the cardiothoracic surgeons could do it, we could do it. So we set up a uh, a system where we could reclaim the blood from an orthopedic wound. And there were many cases, Bob, where we had done these big revision procedures, which are particularly bloody operations. And we were having four and six unit uh, blood transfusions over you know, the first 24 hours. Well, that's totally unacceptable. So we decided that, well, like I said, you know that's still the patient's blood. we're going we're going to send that blood that we collect in our drain systems through a process that separated the blood from the bone marrow in a was called a poly it's a micro uh, filter that that is usually used when you connect anybody's blood, uh, donor blood to the patient. We did that, but we also had a process that was proprietary that we developed for separating the fat in the blood, which is, as you know, um, significant when you're talking about bleeding from bone. So everybody had been hesitant up to that point, but it was basically a, a process that allowed a fairly simplistic um not 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 necessarily high tech, but but fairly simplistic uh, and realistic. Rapid turnover of the blood that came from the wound and um, reinfused into patients that was was pretty dramatic. So for a few years, that became a standard.
0: Yeah. Before you go into that, I want to tell the listeners that you the the way you dove into this was your mentor you had a patient that lost a tremendous amount of blood and maybe would have died. And so they, they said, Jeff, uh, you're staying up all night. You're going to hang out with this guy and you're going to filter all the blood that comes out of there. And so it it freaking worked. And the patient recovered instantly had no problems at all. And so after that, they had a, they had something that they could patent or something like that. Isn't that the story?
1: Yeah. So, so basically it, and I was, you know, I don't know how, how your audience, (laughs) understands these kind of things. But I, I, I think, you know, this all gets back to autonomous decision-making by doctors. And, you know, that's, that's really been made much more difficult now, but, but basically, yeah, I was, I was up at night. This patient had lost four units of blood. We ran out of blood in the blood bank that was uh, eligible for him to be re to be transfused. In other words, they didn't, they
0: didn't have the right type.
1: compatible blood. Yeah. yeah. So I said, okay, you know, we had talked about this. I called my mentor at the time, the surgeon, And we discussed it over the phone. He said, yep, just do it. So we did it. And the patient was remarkably healthy and pink and energetic the next morning. And, of course, this is, you know, a desperation thing. It's uh, uh, very fortunate that it worked out as it did. Uh, but it led to uh, further study and, and repetition of this kind of thing. And we developed enough of a database that we were able to attract the industry people in. And that's where it went from there. And so, yeah, we had a fairly good thing going there for a while. But, yeah, things change and technology changes. So that was that was a, a blip in the management of patients who had joint replacement that lasted for a few years in terms of how you you know how you treat that particular problem it's crazy we were we were very fortunate
0: <laughs> so um jeff do you have any ex- experience with these all these other uh, you know elbows and all that other stuff i mean yeah t- i've
1: done a few elbows are pretty rare bob as are most other joints the the up and coming joint right now in terms of the frequency of the procedure is probably the ankle but again, it's it really gets back to the technology that's available to to adapt to that particular joint, and it's all, they're all different. So hips and knees tend to be the easiest. But you mentioned earlier that hips do better than knees. Knees still are very hard to reproduce uh, the natural performance, and uh, we haven't gotten to that point. Uh, a lot of people would argue we're not there with hips, but we're pretty darn close. Uh, but knees are a very mechanically much more complicated joint than most. Elbows are like that. El- the thing about elbows is they're not subjected to the to the same types of loading conditions. So, you know, they're smaller bones. We have to use smaller parts. And again, you know, depending on how it's loaded, how often, there's a there's a tremendous. Uh, Uh, influence there in terms of what we're able to do and and not able to do. But yeah, fortunately, not too many people have to have their elbows. Shoulders are are getting to be very good now. And I think you're very fortunate to have your shoulders done at a time where we can say this, you know.
0: Those hips got a some sort of award for the best surgery in the 20th century, didn't they?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it'd be like the, the the Apple computer or something. I think back probably in, as I said, in the 1960s when they, they really hit their stride, and so to speak, and uh, they were widely accepted and done, done around the world. And now, you know, hips are, are very reliable. There's still their still there share of problems that can occur. Most of that's post-dependent, meaning, you know, the, the patient's uh, pre, uh, preoperative status plays a big role in all this. It's not all just the technology or, or who installs it
0: so jeff i've got all kinds of uh questions random stuff and uh interests, but uh i want you to first take this in whatever direction you think is best if you want and then if you if you'd rather have me uh ask questions i can do that but do you, is there what sort of things do we want to cover before we run out of time
1: well i think i'd say really quickly the uh the the role of joint replacement now returning people to preoperative uh, performance is good enough that you shouldn't ever uh, fear it in terms of you know the the outcome. I think.
0: Oh, okay, sorry, Jeff. I had to get the dog shut up, and uh, he's having a fight <laughs> with the gardeners. <laughs>
1: not a problem.
0: Yeah. So go ahead and uh, explore some things that we should not miss.
1: Well, as I said, I think if you're you're having trouble with your joints, and I'm talking about the major joints. Uh, you see your doctor. Your doctor determines if you're a candidate, and they have very selective requirements that you know that make make for good results. But good results are are possible, so you don't fear it. Uh, but you know going into it, it's going to be uh, a bit of an ordeal. The, the surgery itself will probably take anywhere from an hour to two hours for most joints. Uh, it normally does not require blood transfusion now for a lot of reasons. Um, it's, uh, not done, you know, minimally invasive, uh, even though they'll use that terms, it's not done percutaneously. So you're going to have an incision and you're going to go through the usual post-op recovery and rehab. It's going to take you, um, probably two weeks to get away from the pain medicine, to get up on your feet and do a lot of normal daily activities, but nothing, nothing rigorous. And then for about the first three months, you're in most cases, if you're in pretty good shape going into it, uh, you're going to rebound to a point where you can recover most of the normal things that people do. Let's just say older adults who have the common forms of arthritis and have the surgery, you're going to probably do that within three months. But if you're talking about peak performance for most of these joints, elbow, shoulder, knee, hip, um, you're you're looking at probably a year before you're going to get that peak athleticism back. And it takes quite a while for the joint uh, scar tissue to remodel and it takes an equal amount of time uh, for most people to regain lost athleticism in terms of muscle and uh you know uh, flexibility and balance and all that kind of thing that goes into athletic uh, activity so that's kind of it in a nutshell uh there are complications the risks uh, are pretty minimal you know usually about one percent uh, for infection and a lot of that depends again on your pre pre more your uh uh free status um it's it's a it's it's good enough results now that you, you you don't you don't fear that possibility unless you're very high risk in other words so uh, mechanical failure again you're probably going to go 10 to 20 years in all likelihood even under you know a more a normal lifestyle loading condition and there are many implants that are out there 25 30 years old. So you can't discount that possibility as well.
0: Uh, Jeff, I'm not so concerned about peak athletic uh, performance. We're not the men we once were, are we? (laughs) (laughs)
1: You were were always quite an athlete.
0: I'll take any, any, uh, you heap on me. Um, so, uh, you know, I've heard that, uh, joint infection is a life altering experience. So you really had 1% of your hips get infected. That must've been horrible.
1: That's kind of a national figure, Bob. We, we were probably a little bit below that, maybe six tenths of a percent, something like that. And again, I mean, there's a whole team effort that goes into this. But the number one factor is, again, you know, uh, comorbidities, things that are that are you carry with you as baggage when you go into it. And the doctor's uh, nowadays are are generally very good at at explaining this and identifying the that kind of a situation so
0: you send them all to the dentist don't you
1: uh if they haven't been for a checkup recently uh, within the past 3 to 6 months we used to do that yeah
0: there's a thing called a spiral ct scan that you can a- identify these hidden apical abscesses so if i was an ortho i think i'd send everybody for that and <laughs> and and the dentist and get a urinalysis and everything else you know send them yeah, off we, to see the wizard
1: wow we have we had pre-op, pre-op laboratory uh, ba- uh battery of things that we did and i say did because i haven't done this in the last year and a half but it, it's a it's a very very uh comprehensive approach so
0: so what know, do you do for these ones to get infected you have to take the implant out and you put them in bed for a, a month well, and a half like while I see,
1: they it's pretty rare uh that figure that i gave you is sort of you know encompasses just about all comers so you know if you have people who are immune compromised or whatever very sickly older people uh people on steroids for example i mean there are just a number of things that might render you more um susceptible but for the people who are just you know average guy who's pretty healthy, maybe 60, 65 years old, it's, it's quite rare. And most of those patients are treatable. It almost always is going to involve a, a, uh, another surgery or two surgeries. Uh, generally speaking, when you get an infected joint, you have a foreign body that has to come out. You know this is a surgeon yourself. And then you have to have a period of time where people are treated for the, for the infection with the appropriate antibiotics. Um, and then you have to have a, a wound that is ready to be re-implanted. In other words, a, a second operation uh, um, would be uh, the second part of the, the, the two operations that might be used for uh, treating an infection. So you're on your third operation here. Uh, now, not all of them have to be removed. There are some very selective cases that you might not have to remove the implant, but almost, you know, most of them, I'd say probably 80 to 90 percent requires a two operation procedure to treat the right. infection. But but again, the results are pretty good on those situations.
0: So you leave them without an implant for a while.
1: Well, we put in depending on the, the joint uh, for hips and knees, we have to put in at least a, what we call an articulated spacer. So we maintain the tissue around it. Otherwise, things get very contracted and uh shortened up and you, it's very hard to ever restore a normal joint again by re-implanting the anatomically correct uh, implant. So uh, yeah, we, we, we do that. It does allow people to have a uh, somewhat restricted lifestyle, but still a, a potential uh, ability to take care of themselves. And this is, for most people, it's going to involve at least a three to six month commitment to getting better. So and two operations for the majority, like I said, after you have been discovered as an, a, a, as a patient with an infected implant. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's something that no doctor or patient ever wants to see, but that's the reality. We still deal with it.
0: So you mentioned earlier to me uh, before we got started that a large percentage of your campers were um, revisions. Is that true? and what percent?
1: Well, when I say revisions, I see patients who, are all comers. I see people who come in with problems from their 20 year old joint replacement that, you know, I didn't do. And i see patients who come in with an infection from the guy down the street, you know, it wasn't necessarily all my problems. So, I I mean, it's, it's, that's just the reality of this kind of a practice. And that's true for all the orthopedists who who do this sort of thing. So we, we do generate our own share of problems and I certainly did that, but you know, in order to justify continuing to do what you do and good moral conscience, you have to have at least some ability to to help enough people to make that worthwhile.
0: That sounds like a tough practice. I I couldn't stand dealing with complications. It was, it was just the most tough part of mine. My thing. Yeah.
1: what I admire about you, and I saw this to some degree myself, is that you're dealing, as a cosmetic surgeon, you're dealing with trying to uh, trying to match a patient's subjective uh, <laughs> desire with, with your work where you know as a surgeon you can't always do what you want to do. It's always a, a a situation of trying to inform your patients ahead of time, but with with orthopedics, there is that attitude too that people come in and says, Well, this is the most successful operation there is and we should all have perfect results. And of course, we all know that's not achievable.
0: Wow. How how great?
1: Yeah, no, it's a it's a stress. You live with it daily. It's it's a high it's a very high pressure kind of thing.
0: Haven't hasn't your stress reduced greatly since you got out of the whole well, I,
1: you know, I always tell people I can't recommend it enough. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I can, I feel the same way.
1: That that was a good part of my decision. I, I you and I both know that um you know, COVID changed things dramatically. The introduction to the EMR made things difficult for us all time so the
0: EMR is electronic medical records and uh the statistic the numbers of the amount of time that the average physician spends on that is at least a third of their time so they took these other these relatively busy professionals very busy professionals and they gave them a 30 percent more work to do because in order to get paid you have to go home and click on your uh click in the boxes and I think your wife spends a lot of time with that now because she's still in practice
1: isn't she she does and she comes she's a dermatologist in an academic setting she comes home after uh eight hours in the clinic and then has dinner and then has to go to work for the next hour to two hours doing her uh her office her clinical documentation it all has to be done on uh complicated uh medical electronic medical record uh programs and it's just it's sad i mean you you and i grew up in an area in an era when we were able to do this on the fly with with uh, the patient in the room a lot of times, or maybe within a minute or two after we left the room before seeing another patient, it's just gotten so over the top, absurd that that a lot of doctors were became so disenchanted, particularly the older guys, the guys that didn't grow up with a keyboard in their hands. They, they found it too burdensome, as I did.
0: As a uh, cosmetic surgeon, I never was subjected to this, and I just and I had paper charts to the end. And that was a wonderful thing, and I've just gotten rid of them all.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, well, it's, that's a good.
0: One. I got a had a garage full of, them. or I've gotten yeah, rid of most yeah. of them. There's a few yeah, that I'm, are within I'm, seven
1: years. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm seven years since my my private practice, and everything since then was in my academic practice, where they assumed all the records, so that was a big help.
0: So be, before we uh, hit on whatever else you think is important, I just want to make sure we hit this idea: sure. steroid injections make things worse. Isn't that correct? I mean, you get relief for a month, but they ultimately destroy the joints and the cartilage.
1: I think my own my own approach with steroids is that if it was absolutely critical for somebody for some reason, and you know, you can go through all sorts of scenarios. Uh, where somebody is in dire pain and cannot have surgery, but is scheduled for surgery or would be scheduled for surgery. Otherwise it might buy them a few months and you only get one or two. The problem with steroids is that it is a risk for infection after you've had a steroid injection a risk for infection leading to a, a surgery. Um, if you're headed for surgery and you know that, uh, you know, within a short period of time, but it's, it's also, somewhat destructive to the joint. I mean, you're essentially uh, rendering a joint pain-free, feedback-free, other than maybe some noticeable stiffness, where patients then would go out and uh, otherwise protect it. They're out there loading it heavily. So you see a fairly rapid destruction, not to mention the systemic effects of of steroids. The injectable steroids didn't have such a great system amount of systemic problems, but, you know, that's it's just a reality of uh, of uh, what's there. So I think you're always better off if you can maybe avoid that.
0: So you're an Eskimo that knows too many uh, names for snow, Jeff. <laughs> All you have to do is say, yeah, avoid the steroid injections to make me happy. So okay. I remember I'm an emergency uh, physician. Yeah. They either go upstairs <laughs> or they, they go out the door. So related question, wow. and forgive me for my cynicism, but I've overheard, orthopedic surgeons talking about this, and they say that once they have a knee patient, they have them for life. And what they do is they initially start out with steroid injections, which uh, aid in the rapid destruction of the joint unfortunately give them some relief though and then they go on to endoscopic uh, cartilage removal which completes the destruction and then they have to do the surgery now i maybe we're, you're not so you know i'm sure you were not so calculating but i think some of them are and you could address the idea of the meniscule or the uh, uh, cartilage removal the nipping and tucking of the cartilage and how that has been disproven by a uh, randomized uh, uh, surgical control trial
1: I think you're absolutely right. I think that's way overplayed. And uh, what we know, I, I saw regularly in my practice, with people who would come in and say, "You know, I never had any knee problem before, and I know I'm 60 years old, but you know, I was out uh, I was out raking leaves, or I went out and played a little softball with my kids, or whatever. Boy, I came up with this. I twisted my knee. I came up with this problem, and I thought, okay, well, how many times did you do that prior to this in your lifetime, and you never had a problem? So First thing is you have an elderly degenerative meniscus and it tore and that's what happened. But it was going to tear at some point and it was probably going to be very soon, no matter what you did. So those patients have, by definition, degenerative arthritis in their joint from that point. Because we know from that point, that's sort of the, the introduction to the problem. It's probably been there for a while. It's an aging process, but that's what happened. So those people are, you know, a year away, almost always maybe a little bit longer in some cases, and certainly a little bit less time in other cases, where they're going to have bone against bone <laughs> in addition to that torn cartilage. So I would try to tell people this, but you'd be surprised the resistance that people had who were usually uh, you know, very athletic and sort of youthful people to hearing that, that you're getting old, <laughs> that your joint is beginning to wear out, and you're going to need an ear replacement before long. Little by little, they would come around, Bob, because they would continue to have a problem whether somebody injected them, whether they had arthroscopic surgery, or whether they tried to go to physical therapy or whatever, it had, you know, you name it. None of that stuff is a anything more than a very quick, short-term fix.
0: Stem cells completely correct the problem, though. Is that correct?
1: Sure it does. <laughs> yeah. That and a good shaman will really help you.
0: Okay. So tell the audience a little bit about your approach to overweight people and the thresholds for not even considering hips or knees and so on and so forth about that.
1: Well, you know, we, we use BMI, we use a number of uh, factors, but but joints actually can hold up quite well if you can physically technically do the surgery on an obese patient. The problem that we saw was the technical ability to do it and to have the wound heal without a complication. That's what obesity means. It isn't necessarily, well, if you do this on a joint, uh, uh, you know, a fat patient, he's going to wear it out or he's going to break it. No, that's not usually the case. Those patients tend to be actually less active and load their joints less than most patients do. So my patients where I was able to succeed successfully do their joints, their knees, their hips, they did fine. Trouble is it's a very high risk for the surgery and the perioperative period.
0: So, um, now I'm sorry about all this geeky detail. Um, may it's not geeky detail for you, but it is possibly for my listeners, but tell me, tell us, does everybody take blood uh, clot thinners or blood thinners, the oral agents and how, for how long?
1: That's standard. And most people, we did it. And I think the standard still is people would take it for at least three months, but there are different opinions on, on, you know, the, let's just say the standard approach to a healthy patient, but there's so many different, again, these uh, comorbidities, things that people come in with that may dictate that you have to diff to, to alter your, your, uh, your clotting uh, uh, approach. So yeah, we, we used uh, aspirin on a lot of the, basically healthy patients, but we'd use a small dose for three months. And uh, that's not a real high risk for people who are active. So the goal was always to get people mobilized as quickly as possible, limit that downtime. That was one of the biggest factors that
0: so my last question is, um, tell us briefly about this, uh, metal problem that all those hips had and how they all had to be removed and, or most of them had to be removed. And I mean, I read a story about an orthopedist who, uh, had it happen to himself. And they said they got into his hip and it was all black from the metal <laughs> rubbing off. It doesn't sound no. good to me. And then he, of course, he recovered once they put the modern implant in, this is not a, a recent problem, but, uh, this is something Jeff still faced. He was removing and replacing these things towards the end of his career, even weren't you?
1: Well, I put a few in too, Bob. <laughs> so, you know, you're talking about a, a technology that, that went through an evolutionary process, you know, you said, you know this guy had this older implant replaced with a modern implant. Well, you know at that time you, you go back and and there's iterative iterative uh, 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 examples of different technologies that at the time were thought to be state of the art. So you can't just always uh, impugn you know some somebody's implant versus another implant. There were some differences in some cases where there were clearly defects or flaws, but, Metal on metal hip replacements became common uh, about, you know, I'd say 2005 to 2011, 2012, when we started to see where debris that formed at that articulation. But the reason that metal on metal came about was because the traditional metal on plastic components were having problems already. That was a attempt to solve that problem. But it turned out to produce its own set of issues. So we all went through revisions for failed metal on plastic hips and other joints as well, because that was a standard for most uh, joints and, st- and still is. But the difference now is that we have much better polymers that we can use for the plastic component. We have better, less uh, well uh, friction uh, producing Uh, metals and ceramics to to create that interface that we now have that's much more durable. So yeah, there were issues where the particulates that formed both from plastic-on-metal interfaces and metal-on-metal interfaces caused local tissue destruction. And sometimes it was catastrophic. Sometimes people didn't really know that they had much going on until they came in with a little stiffness and had an x-ray done that showed destruction of bone and even loosening of the implants around the bone because of it. You get in there, if there was metal on metal wear, a lot of times we we call that metallosis. You'd see tissue that was stained black from that metal debris. And the bigger problem is the actual destruction of capsular tissue and tendons and, and the bones surrounding it, which could make very, very challenging reconstructions. But yeah, we do have much better and much more durable implants now where we're not seeing that same kind of problem within just a few years. We're, we're now looking at, I think, most patients going, like I said, probably 20 years, 10 to 20 years with, with minimal complications, if any.
0: Uh, Jeff, I think that you had one more topic you want to discuss, at least, uh, that had to do with uh, how medicine was going and so on. But before uh you wrap up i want to say what a pleasure it is to talk to you every single time because it brings back the same feelings i had when we were driving those little go-karts in and out of our our driveway when we were 12 years old you were probably eight or nine, oh, yeah and i was yeah, we, 12 and yeah. you know i hung out more with your older bro
1: yeah no you guys were you were the older crowd. Yeah. Well, no, it was, yeah, we had a lot of fun, Bob. It was really an exciting time. And uh, we learned a lot about life. That's for sure. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> but I, you know, I, and I want, I just want to say that I admire so much what you're doing, because you're pointing out some of the, the problems that we're seeing in healthcare. And Lord knows we have a lot of problems with cost and with accessibility and all that. And I think, you know, your audience probably is more astute than most in terms of understanding the reason for this. But you know, we I, I practiced for almost 35 years and, and I was in a solo private practice. I was in a group private practice and I was in an academic press. I, I, except for government or military, I've had, you know, a full exposure to what's out there from a doctor's standpoint. And you and I, we saw what happened with this creeping socialization. We saw what happened when government started funding healthcare, right? We also, and as what we've been talking about, we've also seen how the successes and the technology in healthcare started to make healthcare and the delivery of healthcare, a very lucrative type of uh, thing, not only for for physicians, but, uh, but for industry in particular. And so you had this more heavy handed approach, growth of the government bureaucracy and third party payers that came in and you know they wanted a piece of the action essentially i mean first of all i think it's unconstitutional to, to even have government funding healthcare to begin with and you know my my liberal colleagues will say oh you know but we we have to have this and and this is you know such a great thing and i i tell people look um, you know we we don't have that ability to solve everybody's problem and to pretend that we do is is crazy it's going to cost a fortune we we just physically can't do it but uh, you know, we also understand that, that doctors have to be remain autonomous. What we've seen, and I've seen this from all different viewpoints in those, different, those practices that I've held is that we've seen um, the third party payers and, and the government third party influencers from all sides have such a control over what we do that we don't have the ability to individually treat patients anymore. We have, we have lost physician autonomy. You and I both know that even during surgery, we have to do things that aren't exactly, uh, we'll say consensus uh, treatments. Certainly we use off-label drugs all the time, right? We're doing all these things that, uh, that we have to do because we have no alternatives and we're trying to help patients. Well, we now have a situation where, just as an example, you can't do those things because it's not on the drop-down menu of allowable treatments or procedures, and you have to face the consequences if you decide to do that. Mm-hmm. Most doctors have done two things: they've escaped by consolidating themselves with a huge group where they don't have to worry about all the the pit all the uh, aspects of practice management and the worries that you're not complying with the latest this or that, or you don't you know you. You're not with the, the the program as far as the latest EMR requirements. So you have fewer independent doctors, and you have fewer ability, uh, less ability among with each doctor to make those independent decisions. And I think that's a very sad situation. That's a perspective that I've gained and understood probably better in this past two years with COVID, uh, where you, you see that you know people. We don't have all the answers. We don't, have, as doctors, we 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 know that the human body is impossibly complex. Uh, the ability, our ability to understand the disease, human uh, human disease, is so limited that it's just too bad that we've had now our hands tied. We can't really make decisions without facing, you know, the, the usual penalties or traps. It used to be, we just w- worry about the. Uh, Civil litigation, <laughs> you know, medical malpractice type of thing. But now it's every, every, every aspect of what we do, do is so scrutinized and so controlled that you, you really, you wouldn't venture out of your little safety zone at all if you're smart. And that's too bad because it really restricts innovation and it makes treatment inaccessible or impossible for patients. So anyway, that's my screed for the day. <laughs> but I can tell you a lot of people don't understand this. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just sad.
0: Well, it's apocalyptic. <laughs> Jeff, it's, it's, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get together soon and chat more, uh, off, <laughs> off, off the air, but, uh, I'm grateful for your things that you help my listeners understand. And, you know, we, we've we got a group that some of whom are, considering uh joint replacements and they have arthritis and they have to understand what what what's up with this. And I yeah. didn't come easily to the idea that I needed my shoulders replaced, but when I understood that I had a good surgeon available to me and that uh the results were likely to be excellent, I I went for both of them at once, you know, within a short period of time. Yeah. And of course they don't do both of them together because of hygienic problems. There <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the last joke for the for the podcast. <laughs>
1: Great. Well, thank you, Bob, and I appreciate the offer to come in and share my, my experience with you.
0: Okay. Thanks, Jeff.
1: Take care. Okay.